It's a quarter of the year through the new year already and bookkeepers just continue to churn out amazing work around Australia. Thank you for joining us today on the ICB News Channel. My name's Rob Marshall and I'm thrilled today to have the boss, the CEO of the ICB joining me to talk some really, really important things that I think will uh, really resonate with bookkeepers across Australia. Now, this is whether you are a bookkeeper in practice, whether you're a bookkeeper in employment, we're going to unpack some really, really important information here. But first of all, before we get too far into it, welcome to the ICB News Channel, as always, Amanda Linton. Thanks, Rob. It's such a pleasure to be back with you and all your listeners again. We uh, we we seem to be getting a, a large number of um, people joining us more and more each month, which is thrilling. We want to thank you if you are a regular to the ICB News Channel. We're really loving the feedback we're getting. We also love it when you jump in and do a review and uh, sort of give us a few stars as well. That helps out. It gets the word out there to other bookkeepers to say, hey, you might want to come and have a listen to this because there's some really, really good stuff, hopefully, that we're able to provide to you each month. And of course, most of our focus is around the resources and the articles that we produce monthly for, in particular, our ICB uh, newsletter. And uh, we're going to put a big, big focus on probably the big article of the moment in our most recent um, edition of the ICB newsletter. And it's got the heading, the data is in your charge rates. And this is on the back of um, feedback that we've been seeking out across Australia for the last few months in the form of our 2023 ICB annual survey. And the results are in. So no better person to get than the CEO to come along and share some of those insights with us. So first of all, Amanda, maybe give us some insights into how do we, how does this survey come about? How does it, how does it work? Thanks, Rob. Well, we've now been conducting the ICB annual industry survey for 13 years. So this is something that has been entrenched in our history and we collate a whole heap of information that our members tell us they absolutely love. Once the survey is put together, we distribute it free to anyone who wants it. So um, yeah, the, the whole idea of the survey is to collate as much information as we can so that we can better understand who a bookkeeper is in Australia and what is it that they actually do. And as you called out in the intro, when we're talking about bookkeepers, it's very easy for us in the professional services space to sit and talk about just those bookkeepers who might run their own bookkeeping business or someone who works as an employee in a bookkeeping business. But it's really, really important to understand that the accounts clerk sitting in the back end of a real estate agency or the mum who's doing the books after hours because her and her husband or her and her partner own a cafe and all of those kinds of things. So we try and encompass information from a very, very broad range of people who work within what we consider to be the bookkeeping industry. And as I say, that uh, that is a very broad scope brush as to who we bring into it, but it's critical because the data that we collect from this not only do we distribute out to anyone who would like it and you can register for a free copy of it, but what we also do is this information helps us shape the industry and the yeah. development and growth of the industry and professionalism. So um, it has a number of purposes behind it and we try and get as many people involved as we can. Very much so. And uh, it is part of a, a big focus that we're putting this year in 2024 with ICB about the impact of bookkeepers and what they do in a, what we, they do in a community. And um, we, we want to keep calling it out. We want to shout it from the roof, rooftops. There you go. We'll get that word out eventually from the rooftops um, that bookkeepers do amazing things every single day of the week here in Australia. And uh, professional bookkeepers obviously are, are at the fore, but as you've said, that spreads out across a wider range and dare I say it, we might also be referencing uh, treasurers and people who are involved in sporting clubs and in churches and all sorts of different um, environments that are doing bookkeeping and not necessarily maybe, you know, so invested in the charge rates that we're going to talk about now, but are still invested in bookkeeping and the impact of that in our Australian society is huge. So really, really important piece, um, this, the ICB annual survey, and we'll be... Um, we're going to be talking about this a bit 
on and off throughout the year. We're not going to just completely un, sort of try and unpack the whole thing today because it's huge and there's so much we're going to talk about. So let's let's get into it. We've talked a little bit about how the survey comes about and its value to bookkeepers and the wider business um, sphere, you could say. So our main article um, really tunes in on, or, or zones in is a better word, on charge rates. Why, why, the, why the importance of, of looking at that, Amanda? And maybe if you can start to explain a little bit about what actually came out through the survey. So there's a, a whole range of reasons as to why we look at charge rates. The first is to ensure that um, those working within the industry are actually charging at a rate that is appropriate for the level of service that they're providing out to the business community. And like most professional services, Rob, those with um, a lot more experience tend to charge more than those that have maybe not quite as much experience in the space. And that's that's not dissimilar to any other professional services sphere that we talk about. The other reason that we, we concentrate on, um, or we, we collate information, should I say, on charge rates is because we quite often get asked as a professional association, how much should I be charging when I actually enter into this space? And because of the way in which that so many people enter the bookkeeping industry, particularly when we're talking about them entering in practice, then it's really critical for us to understand who these people are and therefore why they charge what they do. Now, Rob, just before we kick it off, just for a bit of fun, I put together a bit of a profile of what does a professional bookkeeper in Australia look like in 2023? Right, and so there was good. some really interesting information that came out from that. So uh, so this is a, an average profile, say, of the professional bookkeeper. So they'll be female, they'll be 52 years of age, they'll live within 100 kilometres of a capital city, and they're likely to be a member of a professional association, which... As you know, Rob, we're always very keen to promote and uh, and ensure that people are properly qualified. Um, most of them are either certificate four in financial services degree or diploma qualified, and most have actually entered the industry between the ages of twenty and thirty. Uh, they have been working in the space for fifteen plus years. But here's something really interesting: a lot of people don't know. Seventy percent of professional bookkeepers in Australia work solo, so mm. it's just them in a business and uh, and they are generally servicing 30 to 31 clients is the average and um, they tend to have, be, or sorry, tend to be working between the 30 and 35 hours a week. So by collating all of that information together and then taking us into the conversation we're just about to have around charge rates, it's also making sure that because these people are solo, and they have entered this sp this space as a professional bookkeeper in practice running a business, one of the things that we tend to see is a bit of a confidence problem in our space. And yeah. that is, do I actually charge what I'm worth in the professional sphere? And so by collating this information, it just means that people can benchmark themselves against others in the industry and see where they're sitting. Now, part of that, as I said, they're working solo. If they're in business, we also want to make sure that they're looking after themselves financially, charging fairly, not overcharging, but also too that they're actually making the kind of money that given all of the things that come with running your own business and the challenges that that brings to make sure that they're at the very least covering the type of wages that they would get if they were employed in the space. So as I say, there's a number of different reasons why we look at the charge rate factor. It is. It's so true um, for my journey uh, into bookkeeping back in the 90s, late 90s and into the 2000s, around the same age demographic as you spoke about. So I am very much the average bookkeeper in Australia, or the average um, demographic of a bookkeeper. We won't call any bookkeeper average. They're all exceptional. Uh, <laughs> but I, um, yeah, I, um, I, I entered in my 20s and uh, probably the only thing different is I'm clearly not a female. I've got a you know, a few few facial hairs that suggest that that's not the case. Um, but um, I I definitely, when I first entered, I would I would actually quite I was actually quite stressed about what do I charge, and if anything, 
for a large part of the early part of my journey, I can clearly see now I was undercharging. I was way undercharging because I just was, I didn't have that confidence to think that I could charge at a rate that was truly representative of the services that I was delivering. So this is a really important piece and I reckon right about now there's a few people going, oh, I want to hear the next part of this, so let's get into it. What what did the survey reveal about about uh, charge rates, but also interestingly, what did it re- did it reveal about um, the the demographics, or not so much the geography of those charge rates? So where you live and and what you do. Yeah. So one of the things that we've called out in the article in the newsletter in the piece is that um, the charge rates across Australia are relatively consistent. Now, where there used to be quite a big disconnect. So for those of you who might have heard me speak before, you know that I come from Tasmania. Uh, and usually when we come from regional areas like you do, Rob, we quite often hear the conversation about, oh, but the market won't pay the kind of mm. professional rates that you're suggesting that I should be charging or that I sit with benchmark. Well, what the data is showing us now is that it actually doesn't matter whether you're in a capital city or whether or not you're sitting, you know, out in regional Bunbury in WA. Um, the charge rates are consistent across the board. And that is really great to see because what that indicates to us is the confidence of the people in the industry and the confidence of the people who are running these small businesses, and that's what they all are, they're all small and micro businesses, um, are actually charging a good national rate, um, standardised rate. And we pulled the data apart, not only on the basis of whether they're 100 kilometres from a capital city, but I also did it on the basis on a state-by-state level. So I I was almost looking, Rob, for an excuse to come up with a difference, and there, are, the data is just showing us there is no difference across the board, or very minimal. So where we've where the data has taken us now is that if you're a professional bookkeeper within 100 kilometres of a capital city, then the national average charge rate is $78 an hour. Or if you're more than 100 kilometres from a capital city, the national average is 77 As someone who sits as one of the industry leaders, I'm so encouraged to see that because for yeah. so many years, we had people in business who were charging less than the minimum wage for bookkeeping services. And what this data, I think, is reflective of now, Rob, is that as an industry, there's confidence building that the value and professionalism that we provide to the small business community is growing. The reliance on us as an industry for for small business to actually meet their compliance requirements is growing, but also the confidence in our industry from business. If we've got bookkeepers attaining those kinds of charge rates, then clearly business is seeing the value in what we do. And that goes to a comment you made before around, well, this is all part and parcel of us understanding the true impact a professional bookkeeper, a good professional bookkeeper who is qualified, who is certified, uh, can actually provide to a small business owner. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We not only just looked at um, localities, the 100 kilometres, the capitals, whether you're in a capital city or in a regional area, but we also put a real lens on what sort of services that you provide. And, you know, there's some that provide what we refer to as high-end services, BAS services, bookkeeping services. Do you want to explain a little bit more about what that unpacked in the um, uh, in, in the survey? Yes, certainly. So what we've actually recognised in the space is really is there one fee across the board for whatever we do. So what we tend to find is that we have professionals who are charging one rate of service level for what we consider to be traditional bookkeeping services. So that's making sure that the technology is working, making sure that the data is good, that we're working with accurate data, all of those amazing things that core bookkeeping, um, fundamental bookkeeping services encompass. And so that's including paying our, um, you know, paying our suppliers and making sure the money's going through the bank, all of those kinds of things. And so Where we landed is, well, as we know from an industry perspective, is there are three charge rates, generally speaking, that someone will charge. Now, the other thing that I wanted to call out is that, interestingly, Rob, only half of the professional bookkeepers now actually charge by the hour. We have more and more who are actually charging for a fixed fee or a value-based scenario, or at the very least, a combination of those things. And so, again, what we're seeing is a community responding to a business need where business owners are saying, I want you to prove to me the value of what it is that you're actually providing, not necessarily how long um, it takes me to do something. So, but, but just looking at it on an hourly basis at the moment, 
when we start to talk about the higher end services, so now we're talking about troubleshooting, consulting, providing best services to a business. So that's the liaising with the GST and might be helping a business through an audit, those kinds of things. So those kinds of services um, are a little higher. Within 100 kilometres of a capital city, we're sitting at $104 an hour or more than 100Ks. That's dropped off a little bit down to uh, 97. But the but then when we look, if we just want to isolate just BAS services on, on their own, because we know we have a number of professional bookkeepers who finally engage with the business once a quarter just to do the mm. BAS, make sure the GST is right, make sure their reporting's right. We're talking $94 an hour if they live within 100Ks of a capital or $90 an hour if they're further out. So they're the three key t- uh, three key tiers that we actually looked at. But it was very interesting to see the, um, the combination or the change in the data this year of the amount of people who are engaging, you know, or paying or charging, should I say, um, on a fixed fee valuation ba- value add basis. That is really interesting because I think if we went back four or five years ago, even, you know, perhaps we tend to now talk pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, so pre-pandemic, um, I would say those statistics were probably around the other way. Most um, most would have continued to focus on that hourly charge-out rate, but we have encouraged over the years for many to consider the different options that are available to them when they come to charge rates, and clearly mm-hmm. one of those is the fixed fee, and uh, certainly... I know, I've had to battle with that in my own practice over the years to go, how do I get my mindset out of just charging by the hour all the time? And we've been able to successfully do that. So um, yeah. it, is, it is something that the survey is mentioning or, or clearly uh, giving some revelation about, also an opportunity for people to then to sit down and consider their own situation and go, is hourly charging still the best fit for me or should I consider what others have discovered in that fixed fee. So, so that's an amazing result, that one. I hadn't, uh, I hadn't got my head around that one myself, uh, even though I'd had a look at the, um, a little bit of a look at the survey. Yeah. Is there any, any other things that came out, you know, sort of from just continuing to focus on charge rates and, and the article in um, our most recent newsletter, you know, from a conclusion point of view, what are, what are the, some of the takeouts? So some of the key takeouts that we've actually, um, we've, we've worked out, uh, is one of one of the things that we looked at this year, Rob, which we probably hadn't looked at too closely in the past, is whether or not charge rates differ between someone who's a member of a professional association and someone who's not. And when we had a look at that, generally the people who are, you know, not members of professional associations um, are data entry bookkeepers or what we call more the traditional bookkeeper that a lot of us would associate baseline bookkeeping services. So they go into a business, the, the chart of accounts has already been set up, um, the business keeps ticking over and literally this person is putting invoices into the system, accepting whatever system settings are, and they're not making any determination around GST. So generally they're what we call data entry bookkeepers. Can I call out, Rob, there's absolutely a place for people who work at that level within our industry. Not everyone has to be a registered agent, right? And so we can actually see that the data tells us that the charge rates, those who are not members of professional associations, generally are doing those lower level um, you know, traditional data entry type roles. But uh, one of the other things that we picked up that I thought was really interesting is that is that when you look at the, the data around um, how much does a professional bookkeeper who's a member of an association charge and those who don't, the, the difference is roughly between, between, between 10 and 12%, depending on which demographic we look at, right? So 10 to 12% um, the difference that I'm talking about is members of a professional association will generally charge 10 to 12% more than those yeah. who aren't. Yeah. And when you think about the level of services they provide, that's probably pretty reasonable in assumption. Um, so, as I say, the data has, has been really great. We're still working on it. We're going to be publishing the full results of the survey by the end of March. It'll be available to download from our website and we'll be able to distribute it out to anyone who wants it. But where we're coming so far, there's some really exciting data coming out of what we've collected. Well, one piece that I picked up on that clearly I think you might have had some influence in your time before you uh, you moved states, but it, it's actually come out that one of the um, higher than average rate 
States is actually Tasmania that you mentioned earlier. So uh, maybe you had a little bit of influence there to go, come on, you guys, you can actually uh, do a little bit better. Well, I'd like to think, I like to think so, Rob. You know, yeah. I was the rates that I was charging when I left Tasmania, which is now 13 years ago, um, when I left Tasmania and I was charging well above the average charge rates at the point at that time. And even up to you know two or three years ago, I still had people challenging me saying, but you don't understand, we're from Hobart, little old Hobart, like people won't charge, they won't pay with their national average. Well, I can tell you, I was charging what is now the national average 13 years ago. <laughs> and uh, so businesses do pay it. They will pay it if they can see a value in the service. And as I said, it really is an indication of just how impactful bookkeepers and how valued to the broader business community that professional bookkeepers have um, have now become. And Look, I think let's not undersell it. I think the pandemic played a huge part in that. Bookkeepers were right at the centre. So, but the the charge rates are, as you say, they do vary ever so slightly, state to state. Highest national average came out of the ACT. Uh, lowest national average came out of South Australia. So, um, and but as I said, the charge rate difference is not ridiculously significant between the two between them so but it's well worth having a look at the data and especially when we publish more of it at the end of end of this month um, being able to see exactly where the rest of that data fell out but we'll we'll keep unpacking it over the course of the year and love to be back to talk to you about it more absolutely there's no issue about that so folks if you haven't had a look at uh, the most recent edition of the newsletter um, grab the the February edition. We're well into March now and there's an op opportunity for you to go and have a little bit more of a, a look at what we've just spoken about, Amanda and myself. There's graphs in there that will show you bookkeeping service charge rates and how they compare from state to state and all sorts of good goodies in there for you to have a look at. But that's only the tip of the iceberg. We will yes. have um, a number of things that we're going to discuss moving forward. Do you want to give us a few tidbits, Amanda? Okay, so just a couple of other teasers of other information we gather out of this survey. So we look at what's the most popular accounting software that's actually used um, today. Not only what is the most popular accounting software used by business, small businesses in Australia, because we ask a lot of questions around our respondents' client base, but what's the most popular one being used by bookkeepers in Australia today? So that's one to watch out for. Uh, the other one to, the we piece of um, information we collate on is things like feedback sessions on exactly what services does a professional bookkeeper provide nowadays. And that's an interesting set of um, dynamics there as well. So they're just a couple of little tidbits. Uh, we also collect some information that we provide feedback to regulators and government about things like how happy are you with dealing with certain government departments um, we also gather some information around the add-ons that come into our space. They're a really big part of bookkeeping now. So what are the most popular add-ons that get used and what are the most popular industries we work in? So there's some real gold in the, in the data, particularly if you're maybe new on your journey or you're thinking about coming into bookkeeping and we'd just like to understand a little bit more about what areas do we work in, what tools and resources do we use, and as we've just talked about, you know, if you're looking to set up a business in this space, how much money can you make? Absolutely. So that's where we're going to draw this part of um, the ICB News Channel to a close, but hang in because we're going to have... Uh Matthew Addison joining us for a bit more of a discussion on some other bubbling items at the moment uh, that we're going to, to work through. But I want to thank the CEO of the Institute of Certified Bookkeepers, Amanda Linton, for joining us today on the podcast and bringing some really incredible insights into the bookkeeping world and what's been unpacked in the ICB's annual survey. So thanks for joining us today, Amanda. Thanks, Rob. It's always a pleasure. I look forward to chatting to you next time. Hang in there, folks, and uh, we're going to bring Matthew Addison in very shortly. The Executive Director of the Institute of Certified Bookkeeper is Matthew Addison, and he now circles into the seat vacated by Amanda Linton. Welcome to the ICB News Channel, as always, Matthew. Thanks, Rob. Good to be here and happy to be upstaged by our CEO. <laughs> Yes, well, we won't touch that one with a 40-foot pole, but um, let's, uh, let's get into some really, really important aspects of the most recent uh, release of the ICB newsletter, which is on the shelves now, as they say in the classics, uh, especially for our members, but also available through www.icb.org.au for 
um, anybody who'd like to go and have a look at news items and news articles that we're going to to focus on regularly in this podcast. Today, we're going to probably do something a little bit different and, and really just focus on one of the articles predominantly that's in quite a bumper edition of the newsletter this time around. And that is understanding the closing loopholes bill. There's there's a lot happening. There's a lot happening, an increasing number of things to just simply consider as a business owner when engaging or in, um, employing an employee. Um, there's a lot to think about now with onboarding, Matthew. And in a lot of cases, the information that's coming through is quite difficult at times to understand, probably in some cases, quite difficult to decipher as to whether it affects a client if you're a professional bookkeeper or affects a certain individual as a business owner. So that's what we want to sort of get our head inside um, for the next 20 minutes or so is talking about what are these closing loophole bills, because there are two of them. And I guess in some ways, put a little bit of a, a shine, a light on does this affect small business in particular? So let's start by calling out that this bill has come in two parts. Part one has already been enacted in a lot of cases. Let's just maybe briefly go over some of the things that we have previously in some instances talked about on the podcast, on this podcast. The same job, same pay rule. So Rob, let me just backtrack. Great intro. Um, You're right, this is complex. This is fundamental changes to lots of aspects of our industrial relationship and relations system. And there are changes all over this. Some of them are very, very complex changes. Some of them are very engineered for, I'll call it the big end of town. Some of them are trying to solve a nuanced problem and the way they've tried to solve that problem is has impact for, for everyone. And the same job, same pay one is a perfect example of that, Rob. Uh, what same job, same pay is about is at the, at the very fundamental level, it's about labour hire companies or it's about employers who have got their own workforce but then also use a labour hire company to bring other workers in to um, their business. And what Same Job, Same Pay is about is saying that if you bring somebody in on labour hire and they're doing exactly the same job as somebody else you've got on your normal payroll, they have to be paid the same. Now, what's the problem they're trying to solve? They're trying to solve that problem where I pay Rob Marshall a hundred grand for doing his job. I don't want to pay Rob Marshall number two a hundred grand. I want to pay Rob Marshall number two fifty grand. So mm-hmm. I go to a labour hire company. I bring them in as labour hire. They're not under my enterprise agreement. They're not under my system. They're under the labour hire system. Now that feels wrong. There's a lot of elements behind what is the same job. But what they've brought in is said, don't undercut the award. Definitely you can't. That's the minimum wage anyway. But don't undercut the enterprise agreement that your business might have by thinking you can bring in a labour hire and they won't be subject to the same pay. Now, Rob, we could get into a lot of nuance there about definitions of what's the same job. I think there's real concerns here about the loyalty of long-term employees versus labour hire fixing a um, worker yeah. shortfall for a short period of time, etc. But big big businesses deal with this. They deal with it constantly. There are some big businesses that have certainly tried to work around the enterprise agreement system by using labour hire. This law was all about if you're bringing labour hire in, they're doing exactly what that your employee does, well, then you've got to pay them according to the same conditions. Applies to some of us. There is a small business exemption, Rob, so that if you're the client business below 15 employees, then you don't have to go through this, this mechanism. As I said, it's aimed at big end of town more than us. And just calling out that um, the 15th of December was a key date. The 15th of December, or well, sorry, the 15th of December 
will be a key date, 2024. There were a number of these provisions that applied from the 4th of September 2023. So if you're still a bit unsure whether it fits for you or works for you, Matthew's called out the the fewer than 15 employees, um, the exemptions that exist there. Uh, Get your head inside our uh, newsletter. There's uh, a link to fair work changes and uh, a little bit more explanation uh, around who this affects. But uh, great summation there, Matthew. It does then go on, still talking about the part one loophole bill about the the consequences of uh, breaching some of these new IR laws, civil penalties and compliance notices. We live in the world of penalties and notices hanging over our head. What, what's generally the effect there? Because those particular uh, penalty notices have come into play on the 27th of February, most recently. Yeah, look, if you're a crook, I'd be worried because the amount of penalties that may be applied to you um, really, really have gone up. Um, so they have materially increased so that a maximum penalty can be imposed up to $469,000 for a entity or um, for a serious convention, um, serious contravention, sorry, up to uh, $4,695,000. So, yeah, real level of fees here that could get quite ugly. Now, where does it apply? It's for um, breaching the National Employment Standard, that baseline of the conditions you have to give an employee. It's for undercutting the awards or totally misrepresenting the employment compared to the awards. It's for breaching um, enterprise agreements or minimum wage orders. So it's, look, I, I opened with it's for the crooks. If you are deliberately, intentionally underpaying people, expect to both be reported, to be caught and to be fined. We um, we put a focus recently on some law changes as part of these. The, um, the bill, um, you can, we'll refer to it as number one, and we'll keep calling it uh, number one, that might make it easier. The bill changes um, around um, persons subject to family and domestic violence leave. We've already had quite a lengthy discussion about that. That took um, became uh, law or it came into effect on the 1st of August 2023. Anything significantly changed since then, Matthew? Or what's your, what's your view on how that one's playing out? I know at the time there was a little bit of angst about what that could mean. Yeah, Rob, it is in. It is law. Great concept that if we have somebody that's part of our team that is a victim of family and domestic violence leave, how can we best support them? So the first thing that uh, the system talks about, the supporting documentation talks about, and ICB talks about, first thing is, is make sure they're safe and make sure they've got the support networks. So um, where the law then goes is confidentiality, confidentiality of the pay records, that if somebody is taking family domestic violence leave, you don't put family and domestic violence leave on their pay slip because who knows who is reading the pay slip. Um, Especially if you've got somebody trying to extract themselves from a situation, you don't want the other parties in that situation seeing that info. Uh, 10 days in a given year is available to somebody. It doesn't accrue over the year. It's 10 days at at each anniversary date. Um, Yeah, there's some record keeping. There's some disclosure. I don't see it as the biggest issue, Rob. It's a network designed to provide support uh, around any victim or associated person with family domestic violence leave. We're not hearing a lot of chatter about it, Rob. We're not hearing a lot of concern about it. The biggest one is that record-keeping one. So for all listeners, if you um, do have somebody on the team of yourselves or a business you work with, ensure they're looked after, ensure the records are kept very confidentially, but, yep, the person is entitled to 10 days paid um, domestic violence leave. A lot of uh, emphasis now moving towards um, rights in the workplace, which, you know, um, 
frankly, is the right thing to do. There's no issue about that. But around people being representative of those rights, so workplace delegates, I mean, we've grown up, many of us have grown up in the world of union officials being part of workplaces in a lot of cases, but there's some, uh, there's some changing, there's a bit of changing space in regards to that about who is elected as a workplace delegate. Do you want to explain how that works and what that relates to? Look, typically this is in relation to workplaces that have union representation, where you have workplace delegates of that union in place and big end of town above 15 head count, uh, the workplace delegates um, have now got an entitlement to training and to be paid for their training. But also the delegates have been given a few new rights about access to information and access to records and being able to demand records. Um, I'm going to hold five on the detail, Rob, because it really does get quite complex quite quickly of how to explain this, how an employer should react. Uh, There does seem to still be a Fair Work Commission obligation for that workplace delegate to say, hey, I want to go in and see these records to make a representation and get permission. But some of that has changed as well. So if they're in fear of records being destroyed by a crooked employer, they're saying they should be able to get in and make sure those records aren't destroyed. Now, that opens up a can of worms, Rob. Um, But yeah, keep, keep your eye on the detail. And if you're certainly in a unionised workplace, uh, get some real detailed advice about exactly what rights workplace delegates have. One that snuck up uh, as part of these um, uh, reviews, part of these law changes, is around redundancy. And, um, yeah, this one caught me off guard. We've known for a long while now, and we've, uh, as the ICB, have gone around Australia of recent times talking about terminations and including redundancies and pointing out that typically small business employers aren't obligated to provide redundancy pays to redundant employees. However, there's a bit of a twist on that one now, and it's in relation to a, a bigger business that did have that obligation uh, for whatever reason, scaling down. What Do you want to just uh, touch on that one, Matthew? Yeah, again, Rob, there's, there was a problem out there. There was a problem out there where some businesses that were not able to use the small business exemption about redundancy payments, they were above the 15 headcount, they would engineer their affairs to make sure they got below the 15 headcount before they wound up or before they sacked somebody so that they could take advantage of these uh, small business exemptions from redundancy payouts. So what this law does is close a loophole. I'll agree with it, that um, it puts guardrails around the, the downsizing of a business. And if that downsizing is deemed to be just to get hold of this exemption from redundancy payments, then you know, these provisions mean no, 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 you can't do that. You were big, you will be defined as big, you need to do and follow the law about redundancy payouts and terminations. Closes a loophole that I think needed doing, Rob. So hence the uh, the title of the bill, Closing Loopholes, and pretty much what we've just uh, covered is has been in place for a little while now in some circumstances as part of part one of the Closing Loopholes bill. Let's get into part two. First question to you is, has part two kicked in or will it kick in or is it yet to kick in? And if it does, it's law. So there you go. That's that's an easy way to answer that one. So what we're going to talk about is law. The first one is one that um, (laughs) I reckon has caught more media air than, than most, and that's the right to disconnect. So... We talked about the CEO earlier. If uh, she pings me after hours, do I have to answer a call anymore, uh, Matthew? Robbie, it's the the end of this journey about the right to disconnect provisions has probably ended in a reasonable spot. Where it started and the way it was first worded just was, was going to have ridiculous implement, implications. So what we've got now and the way it's one of the best explanations I've seen is employees will now have the right to refuse to monitor, read 
or respond to contact or attempted contact from their employer outside of their working hours unless such refusal would be unreasonable. Now, what is unreasonable depends on a range of factors, such as are you a senior executive? Are you paid to be on tap? Even if you're not a senior executive, is part of your remuneration that you will be able to be contacted. Um, so what is in your employment contract? What is reasonable? What's your role? But also with regard to personal circumstances. Now, where does this go? And this is the bit which I was pleased to see, that while you have a right to disconnect and you have a working relationship with your employer and employee about what's reasonable, and just think, guys, you might have a shift change. You might be in an industry, the location where you're going to provide the work changes. So when does that communication happen? It happens out of hours. But where they took this law was if you've got a right to disconnect, you shouldn't be contacted constantly after hours. You shouldn't be, shouldn't be hassled after hours, if I can go there. That the employees will be permitted to apply to the Fair Work Commission for a stop order in the event of a dispute between the employer and the employee regarding any refusal by the employee to respond. So here's the employee going... I have the right to disregard the emails after hours. I don't know, Rob, you would be like me. How many emails do we get overnight? What do we spend the first half hour of each day doing? Clearing yes. the emails that came in overnight. Well, maybe we read them at 10 o'clock. Maybe we didn't. Maybe we read them when we got up at 6 or 7 in the morning. Um, maybe we didn't. But you've got a right not to respond instantly. The SMSs that come in after hours, you've got a right not to respond. If it becomes an issue, sort it out with the employer. If the employer refuses, then employer-employee might end up with a Fair Work Commission question about what's reasonable and what's not. I think I was at a BBL match recently with, uh, you know, two runs to win off the last over and I looked down and to my horror on my phone, I saw... Amanda Linton, CEO, coming up on my phone. Do I take the call or don't I? I certainly took the call. She is the CEO, so. <laughs> but again, you've got a right not to and you've got a right to respond <laughs> later and you've got a right to text her back and go, can I call in five minutes or 15 minutes or five hours when it's more convenient? I had a right to also hold the phone up as the Scorchers won yet another match. But anyway, that's a, that's another story. Um, okay, let's keep going on uh, the loophole bill part two, the closing loopholes bill part two. That's hard to say. Um, the other thing that does, I don't know if I've heard it so much in the media, but certainly walking around the streets of Bunbury and other places that I haunt, Matthew, a lot of people concerned about... In fact, I'll give you the narrative. A lot of people saying, oh, we're hearing that the term casual is soon to be defunct, that we won't have casuals anymore. It's only permanent part-time or full-time employees because there has been some narrative around what is the definition of a casual and in casual employment. Do you want to tell us where that one's headed and maybe uh, clear up a few things there? Yeah, Rob, it's unfortunately some of the headlines. It's unfortunate some of the quotes about what people would like and what people think. Um, can I unwind a little bit of that debate? Is that there is a school of thought that because you're casual, you're vulnerable. Because you're casual, you're misused and abused. 25% of the workforce are casual. 25% um, of the workforce and if I'm generous, let me downgrade that to 24% of the workforce, like being casual. They get their casual loading, they get their 25%, they like to be able to say no to shifts, they work their working hours around their lifestyle and what works for them. Um, I've got some teenage and early 20-year-old kids, Rob, I can tell you they like their casuals. They like that extra, that extra loading. So... The current real narrative is casuals are not going away, um, that the concepts there, but 
Should an employee want to change to permanent, they can now inform their employer they want to change to permanent and the employer could only refuse on reasonable grounds. And the employee is allowed to ask that question every 12 months. Right. So first time after six months in the big end of town, after 12 in the small end of town, and then they can ask every 12, the employer would have to have a reasonable grounds to say no. Now, the definition of casual, it's not just what's in the contract, what this new law says, it's actually what's the behaviour. If you've got a casual that works Monday and Tuesday mornings every week from 9 till 12, and that's every week, that starts feeling like a permanent roster. They're not casual anymore. And so if that employee came back and said, I want to convert to permanent, they would lose their loading, they would get their other leave entitlements and such things, and the world moves on. So, Matthew, in essence, the, the term casual lives on. There, there is no death of a casual, as is quite often the narrative that I hear around the place. Correct. What they've also brought in, Rob, is something for our community where they're in any business that employs casuals. There is now a casual employee information statement. So if you think about we've all got to issue the Fair Work information statement, which is about the national employment standards, those base minimum requirements. If you've got a casual, you have to issue them the casual employee information statement. And the the other one that's come into our space, Rob, is the fixed term contract information mm-hmm. statement. So if mm-hmm. you employ people, but rather than have a open-ended employment contract, it's a fixed term contract, two years. Um, at the end of that two years, are you allowed to roll them over on a contract or do they become permanent? Well, arguably they become permanent. So... But if you've got somebody on a fixed-term contract, it's time-limited as to their employment. You have to give them a fixed-term contract information statement as well. I think we've covered the essence of the the part two. Um, Is there anything else as we start to wind down this episode that you wanted to bring to our listeners' attention, uh, bearing in mind that uh, this affects not only business owners, but obviously the bookkeepers who service those business owners, and we we mentioned it at the start, perhaps you might have heard a few things as a bookkeeper and gone, I don't think that really affects me. Our encouragement to you as the Institute of Certified Bookkeepers is you still need to be aware. You still need to be across these changes because, well, you might find yourself in a position down the track where they apply to you. So, Matthew, do you want to just sort of sum up what all this means? Especially, let, let's let's put a, a lens on what does this mean for the professional bookkeeper and how do they how how do they need to view this? Rob, as ICB, we're going to run through a series of solutions and provide to our members uh, both some webinar chats about these laws in a little bit more depth than we've done today. We've done the introduction one so far. Um, I'm going to talk about the right to, to disconnect slightly slightly bigger and give some solutions to uh, the bookkeepers out there about how to deal with this, how to make the issue go away for all our employers who are going, I'm not allowed to email my workers after hours anymore. Well, you can. It's just what is your expectation in response and is it becoming yeah. an issue for the employee? So some of those practical things, Rob, I think you nailed it. There's things we need to be aware of, have on our radar. Some of us, that's it. All we'll do is tweak it about a circumstance and ask the question of the business owner. Have you thought about this? Have you got somebody advising you on this? For some of you, you get quite involved in this area and you help your employers. So if that's your level of engagement, you've got the expertise and ability to do it, yep, go to the next level. Or you can use our um, employment innovations partner with ICB. They do this every day, every minute of every day, and you could work with the organisations like that in terms of ensuring you've got the right advice. And the other thing we'd encourage you to do, as we always do, is is take an article such as, as this that we've put in the newsletter and have discussed here today on the podcast. And if you're involved with the local ICB um, a network group, 
have a conversation about this. Talk it through. There may be some others who are in the group that have got some greater experiences with some of these law changes perhaps than others. So talk it through, bounce off each other and come into some uh, some clearer understandings by learnings from peers, I guess, is uh, where I'm going with that. We, we really encourage everybody to uh, get involved with a local ICB network group. If you aren't already doing that and you're a, an ICB member in particular, we'd encourage you to check that out. And information about that is also in our monthly newsletters. So make sure that you tune in to uh, the opportunities there. Just mentioning a couple of other items that are in this, uh, the most recent release of the ICB News Channel. Matthew talked in the last episode of the ICB News Channel podcast. Sorry, I think I said the News Channel, the newsletter. Um, In the last News Channel podcast, Matthew spoke about um, some pre-budget submissions that the ICB has put forward for... uh, for viewing and for consideration. We won't go back over those. You can go and listen to the last episode of the News Channel podcast if you'd like to, but you can also read about that in the most recent newsletter. We've got some articles around self-managed super funds and the small how that um, plays out within the small business super clearing house. Try and get that acronym out the right way. It's difficult at times. We've also got some opportunities for you to tap into some Fair Work learning through a a portal that Fair Work have now released to allow um, yourself or business owners to go in and and become more educated in the the area of employment and Fair Work in particular. And the last thing is for those who are uh, looking to attend end of year events, we're already talking June, um, we've got some significant information about the ICB end of year events that you'll be able to connect with but that's where we'll bring today's episode to an end. Matthew Addison, another month has gone by and always a pleasure to work alongside you and uh, our CEO, Amanda Linton, who joined us earlier in this episode. Give you the last word. Thanks, Rob. Um, guys, lots happening out there. Some of you are looking for CPE opportunities. Rob alluded to our uh, end of year workshops that are coming up. Watch for that. Those dates will be with you very, very shortly. Um, and I'm going to call out, Rob, our end of year now summit, uh, where we will go round the country and visit all the states, but then we'll run a two-day extravaganza in Brisbane as well. So we're very much looking forward to those and planning. You'll have more information about the dates and tickets, I believe, will go on sale very, very shortly as well. So um, looking forward to meeting some of you face-to-face and not just by uh, uh, voices on a one-way podcast, Rob. It'll be good to have those interactions happening. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Lots to look forward to. Thank you um, wherever you are, either in Australia or perhaps around the world, tuning into this episode of the ICB News Channel. We look forward to you joining us again on our next episode. Stay safe and stay well. 